Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 389. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to tell you about FinTech Nexus LATAM, happening in Miami on December 13th and 14th. Latin America continues to be the hottest fintech region on the planet, and our 2022 event will feature all the leading players. So join the LATAM fintech community this year, where you'll meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Register at fintechnexus.com slash LATAM and use the discount code PODCAST for 15% off. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Christine Kenner. She is a partner at Ignia. Now, Ignia are um, a really interesting company. They are a VC fund based out of Mexico City. They invest in early stage tech startups with a heavy emphasis on fintech, startups that are looking to grow uh, in Latin America. So we talk all about the Latin American fintech scene in this episode. We, we go through the, some of the challenges in Mexico, how things have kind of evolved over the last uh, few years. She's been doing this since uh, 2011, so seen a lot of changes in Mexico and in Latin America when it comes to capital formation. Now we talk about some of the companies in her portfolio. We talk about the most interesting areas in fintech today. We talk about cash. We talk about crypto and what she's uh, most excited about for the future of Latin American fintech. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you. So why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and maybe in that you can sort of describe how you came to be living in Mexico. You know, I think it's something that you can relate to very well, Peter. Despite the fact that I've been living in Mexico since 2006, I think I'm always very tied to my roots. I consider myself a Chilanga gringa because I was born and raised in the United States and very much tied to Silicon Valley. Uh, I grew up around Palo Alto. And I built the first part of my career in tech companies surrounded by venture capital, working in these very fast-paced, high-growth industries. And it wasn't really until I had my first exposure to Mexico that I realized the enormous potential that is in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And so in 2006... I took on a role leading an education company in Mexico City. And I realized that there was an incredible amount of talent, an enormous opportunity here, but zero access to capital. So I was able to bring my previous experience working in tech companies like Google, having had an MBA and really learning how to grow and scale businesses. And then in 2011 is when I first joined Ignia, which is where I continue to be today. I presume you could speak Spanish by the time you got to Mexico in 2006? <laughs> yes, my mother is Cuban, so I am Cuban-American. Okay. But, you know, it wasn't until I was working and living and breathing here and really not being able to speak English that I was actually able to pick it up fluently. Right, right. Okay. Okay, so then you've been involved then in venture capital in Mexico for more than a decade. So I'd love to get a sense of what the early days were like. Back in when you joined in 2011, what was the what was the landscape like back then? It's very hard to even call it 
venture capital because there wasn't an ecosystem back then. Ignea's mm-hmm. first fund was the first impact investing fund in Latin America. And I think it's very important to emphasize that and actually get an idea of what it was like because the first investors in Ignea were largely development banks. We had backers such as George Soros, JP Morgan, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Omidyar Network. And that was incredibly instrumental to actually raise a fund, which was $100 million, and to actually deploy capital. But we were investing in largely brick and mortar companies. Hmm. When Ignea was first started, you know, the iPhone was just coming out. It was so different what the consumer behavior was like then. The market was not ready, I think, to be able to grow and scale technology companies. And there were really no other investors locally and very few investors internationally willing to even look at the region and really consider deploying capital in Latin America. In this first impact investing fund, I think what was great for us is that we were able to find incredible entrepreneurs who later then were able to grow and become repeat entrepreneurs. And today the world is just so different as of every aspect of everything mm-hmm. that I mentioned now. But the opportunity in the market continues to be the same. Right, right. So then, I mean, obviously fintech wasn't really a thing in 2011, no, certainly in Latin no. America. When did you first start paying attention to fintech? You know, when did you make your first investment? In we raised our first venture capital fund in 2016. And this fund is about half of what we've invested in is fintech. And so while with our first impact fund, I think we, we always saw the need for financial solutions. You know, there was still hugely unbanked population. You know, all of those problems still existed. There was no access to credit anywhere. Again, the instruments, sort of all of the infrastructure that's needed to be in place to make fintechs work was not there, right? So with our venture fund is when we first started investing I think you talk about some of the basic things, beginning with payments. And so that was a, a huge area that we first started investing in. Companies like Senor Pago, and we invested in other companies like Arcus that was later sold to MasterCard. And then companies like Undos Tres that are focused on really serving or providing the on-ramp for the unbanked population in very basic transactions of everything from top-ups to cell phone minutes to buying movie tickets, for example. But what really makes them differentiated is the fact that they've built this robust platform and infrastructure that is focused on combating fraud, Mm -hmm. which is something that is exceptionally important in the fintech sectors, particularly in Latin America and particularly in Mexico. And so I think once the entrepreneurs were identifying what these opportunities were, they've been able to then grow on those and grow in scale. Right, right. Okay, so then... 2016, there was plenty of fintech companies around. They probably weren't getting a whole lot of funding. But then we saw this build up. And by like 2020, you know, there was a lot more attention. I mean, a lot of American, big name American VCs coming into the region. So and now we've seen a bit more of a pullback. I mean, maybe you could just sort of talk about a little bit of the how the times have changed and how Ignea has sort of responded to the really huge up and then a bit of a pullback. How have you guys responded to that? Well, I think what is important in all investing is being true to who you are as an investor, so true to yourselves and really focusing on business fundamentals. So I'd say in that regard, in Ignea, we have not changed the way that we invest. You know, the amount of dollars coming into the region and so the co-investors that we're looking to invest with have changed substantially. But you know, we always look first at the entrepreneur. We're looking at the business fundamentals and the market. 
and to really see the solution that is serving to that. And the fact that we come in early, what we've seen is that the co-investors have become a lot more sophisticated and obviously with a lot deeper pockets, which is great for the founders. One great fund that we've seen come in is QED. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that QED has had such a strong focus on fintech and, and been able to provide so much of, of those lessons learned of their experiences and that network from some of the world's greatest fintech companies outside of Latin America, you know, that has been enormously beneficial for the Latin American fintechs growing here. Right. So while we can provide the local sort of boots on the ground knowledge and access. And most importantly, access to helping our founders with the regulation that is constantly changing and moving, right? But also helping them not, o- not only try and influence some of the regulation, but also to help them understand and adapt to the regulation. Having investors like QED on these cap tables is, is an incredible compliment. And we're so thankful that they're, that they're in the region. Right, right. Are Mexican entrepreneurs, do they really want that? sort of stamp of approval from a QED or an Andreessen? What's it mean to them? So I think it's first and foremost important because it's capital. So more so than any brand name, it's because I would say the local funds are still very young and relatively small in size. Mm-hmm. Except what I would say for a few funds like Monashis or Kazakh that have been able to really raise a significant amount more capital, we can only go so far. And so having those international funds come in has allowed the, the local fintech entrepreneurs to actually achieve their visions. I think right. there, there's always been a debate about have Latin American entrepreneurs always just thought small or they just actually haven't been able to get funding to grow big, mm-hmm. right? And I think they've always been much more cautious about where their cash is coming from than you can compare it to some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. So the entrance of like the Andreessen's and QED, absolutely one is bigger tickets. But I also think that they can provide that knowledge and network with other similar companies that perhaps have grown and they can provide that complimentary experience. You know, I would like to think that the local entrepreneurs are much less focused on that brand name in terms of are those funds necessarily going to make a big difference on their boardroom? Perhaps not. But when they're looking for the later stage and the more international investors, I think that is extremely important. Because, you know, they might not know the local investors, but they certainly will know those more international institutions. Right, right. And so, you know, we've seen this year, and I mentioned a couple of times already, but there's certainly in the US, massive pullback. I remember looking at the different funding rounds last year. And if you didn't, if you didn't have a, a you know, $100 million round, you didn't make it in the top 10 biggest rounds of the week, <laughs> usually. That's right. That's so, right. Whereas now, a $100 million round is pretty rare. And has that same thing happened in Latin America? And what's the, has this been a positive or a negative? Well, I think what we've seen globally is happening in Latin America. It's just somewhat delayed. And it's also, it's primarily focused on the later stage checks, so the growth investors. I mean, we right. see the entire pullout of SoftBank and Tiger has just entirely disappeared from the region. Those later stage funds that I think were highly insensitive to valuations we've seen that disappear. Now, what are we seeing in the earlier stages is that we still have an incredible pipeline of companies and opportunities. And I don't think that has changed. I think what the investors are looking for, the important questions is different because we cannot expect those big checks to come along. Right. So for the first time, I, I would see the opening line of most founders is, you know, we have a great business model and a path to break even. 
right? Where that wasn't even anything that was discussed before, right? right. So, um, so that's really interesting. And I actually think it's extremely healthy of what we're seeing, mm-hmm. right? Because I've never been a fan of throwing money at an entrepreneur before they're ready, right? I think having to raise subsequent rounds, it brings an enormous amount of discipline, not only for the founder, but for the entire team where you really need to iterate and you know keep iterating until you find that right product market fit, until you get just enough cash to get to your next stage, right? And I think it's healthy to also have every hire is really uh, firing in all cylinders. When you get a windfall of cash, I think that becomes a lot less disciplined. I think overall, it's, it will be positive for our ecosystem. Right. So then when you look across the fintech landscape today, what are the most interesting areas from your perspective? Well, I think that on one hand, fintech is so vast and so broad, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think some of the more obvious areas where it's dealing with like what was really trendy for a while, the neobanks, those chips have been played. I think we have some of the, the larger players. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. And so what I look to see is what are the underlying themes that are just going to be snowballing on top in the midst of all of these fintechs? And, and one of those areas, you say, is cybersecurity. While this is not, you could say it's not necessarily fintech per se, but there are so many layers within this that need to be addressed. We're seeing a lot of really interesting companies that are now coming out of Latin America, not just Israeli companies or whatnot, but they're coming out of the region because they're focused on addressing you know, the idiosyncratic behaviors of the SMEs in Latin America that cannot just take their one-size-fits-all solution from other regions. And so I think that's an interesting space that we've been looking at. I also think what's interesting to say, like, what are, what are fintechs? Everything in e-commerce, and so that the digital commerce space, everything now has a component of fintech in it. It's sort of become, you know, we've seen so many of our portfolio companies, perhaps that started in very niche solutions, but then they've all added on fintech components as they've grown in scale, because I really don't think you can transact in today's world without having multiple strong fintech solutions embedded into those other platforms. Right, right. But let's talk about cash for a second because you know you live in Mexico. I was just there fairly recently and there was a lot of talk about cash is still so important. And yet yeah. on the last day of the month, people are lining up at the ATMs to withdraw their pay that they've just gotten. So tell me a little bit about like What's it going to do to have cash be less kind of central in the economy there? It is crazy how prevalent cash continues to be, and particularly in Mexico. One, I think we just need to recognize the fact that this is the way the majority of the population still transacts. And so, for example, we've invested in a company called Rapid that's based in Israel, recognizing the fact that we need to have a way to have cash in and cash out. Mm-hmm. And, and still facilitate those transactions and not just imagine it's going to go away. We would love to see leapfrogs like we've seen in some other geographies, uh, but that's just not happening in Mexico today. And so we're trying to understand this, this reality. One of the most important factors is understanding the way people live. And I think it fundamentally comes down to the fact that the majority of the population, they live paycheck to paycheck on many times. And we've seen some incredible opportunities that are advancing the pay what is earned on that same day, right? So you can cash out your daily wage, mm-hmm. right? So you're not waiting every 15 days, right? What's happening, and, and the issue with some of the bank accounts is that even if the paycheck is deposited to a bank account, immediately that individual will take out the cash. 
Because what does he or she do with that? The second that he gets it is that he turns around and then he divides up that cash and pays every other person that he has to pay. You know, if it's his family or, or, you know, his kids. And so they're not in that behavior yet of savings. And so I think as long as the majority of the population is, does not have access to that digital wallet to easily make those transfers amongst each other, cash is going to continue to be the currency of the everyday worker in Mexico. Like there is a pretty large penetration of smartphones, right? In Mexico. So they do have access, right? Like it seems like to me, they're still choosing to be in this cash society. So the benefits of the fintech kind of innovations aren't strong enough for them to move. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And the fact that there is not a universal platform that has been adopted successfully. Like what we've seen is like the overnight radical success of PIX that has been largely driven by the actual users, you know, recommending right. it and making sure everyone else has that. That did not happen with Cody in Mexico. Right. You can sort of dig into why this happened, but you know, Cody was an issue from the central bank. You know, it was not inclusive with all the major commercial banks, right? And has not become universal. Right? I still think the majority of the entire population, even those who are investing in this space, never use Cody. So it was more of a push product than the consumer loving it and pulling it to get to that mainstream access and transaction. Right, right. Okay, so let's talk about crypto. You know, Latin America has had pretty decent uh, crypto take-up. would love to get your sense on that whole space, whether you're are you bullish or bearish on the crypto space. I am incredibly bullish long-term. Right, okay. That's the, the important caveat here, right? Because I think you know we all have our eyes open to what's been happening in the market. It's extended beyond what people would just say is just a little blip, or you know, I think it's actually become a very serious deal for those. I even want to still call them early adopters, but but those individuals that were putting their money into crypto um, because there's just been such an enormous loss of value. That being said, Latin America is such a unique geography for the success of crypto and blockchain for solving such unique problems like Venezuela, like Argentina, where everyday individuals trying to get their money outside of the local currency as quickly as possible. All of, I think, the solutions that we're seeing that are being built up right now in many of these sort of like crypto wallets that you, that you can have provide an incredible resource for these individuals. And that's not going to go away. I mean, I do think long-term, it's going to change the way that, um, that Latin Americans interact and transact and save and invest their money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to talk about sort of geographic expansion because obviously you've got, you've got Mexico and Brazil, the two largest economies in Latin America. And is a typical entrepreneur in Mexico, are they building their company always with the idea of expanding? I mean, obviously, Brazil, you've got the, a bit of a language barrier, but you've got obviously the whole rest of Latin America pretty much that speaks Spanish. Are you investing in entrepreneurs that are always looking beyond Mexico? Absolutely. So I think something that's unique about the way Ingi invests is that we invest in global companies and global entrepreneurs that are looking to expand into the Latin American market. Mm -hmm. So we're not just limited to uh, Mexican entrepreneurs or to you know, Argentine. Our focus is, is definitely in Spanish-speaking Latin America, but we'll go where the talent is and where those companies are going to address the largest opportunities. Now, within Spanish-speaking Latin America, I think we see an enormous amount of talent coming out of countries like Argentina, 
Chile, and, and Colombia. Now, the natural step for those companies is that once they sort of have a proof of concept or, or they've sort of gotten started, then they will come into Mexico because of just the size of the opportunity. And in some cases, you know, I would say proximity to the United States if they plan to expand. It's important to say that there, there are a number of opportunities, unique opportunities for companies to become enormous just serving the Mexican market. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, as an investor, I'm building a portfolio. As, you know, as I manage a fund, I manage a portfolio. And I think one of our greatest risks is to have just exposure in one country and one currency. Right. So that is why I would say as an investor, I'm always looking for opportunities that will complement that. So I will not just invest in Mexican companies, uh, but you will find them sort of across the region. We've looked at a number of, of startups that are coming out of Central America, which is not the most, I would say, obvious place. Because again, you can find great talent. Many of these entrepreneurs who perhaps have been educated in the United States sort of worked in other companies, but the size of those markets is still just not large enough. So they, so they will eventually end up in Mexico or the rest of Spanish-speaking Latin. Right, right. Got it. So then, are you primarily an early-stage investor? Are you also looking to invest in later stages? What stage are you operating in for the most part? So absolutely early stage. You know, we are not pre-seed in the sense that we will need to see some of the product already uh, launched and built. And we have come into some Series B companies and above, but very opportunistically. And I think this is the situation you say when, when an entrepreneur has an incredible product and they need access, they need a local partner. And, and oftentimes, in, in Ignea's case, we're the only Latin American fund on the cap table for, for those type of companies, right? And so we, we will look at that. We're not strictly uh, tied just to the, the early stage. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So then would you say, when it comes to fintech, are the quality of entrepreneurs and the ideas that are coming across your desk today, is that still as strong as it ever has been? As strong or even stronger. And, and the reason I say this is because the entrepreneurs that are building their, their businesses in Latin America today, their backgrounds have changed. So one, we're seeing a lot more international entrepreneurs that are coming into the region because they've seen it happening. They've seen the market. And so they're coming, which is the case, as I mentioned, the company Mundos Tres. These were, were three Indian entrepreneurs who had experience with Paytm. And they realized that nothing similar was being done in Mexico. And so they decided to move here, you know, and, and really build this company based in, in Mexico for the opportunity of the market. You know, something that was just, I was looking at that Lavka published information that in the first half of this year, I think it was over 42% of the founders that received VC funding were repeat founders in the region. And so that is also unique. And so that makes a better founder. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if I think if, if your previous company was wildly successful or, or you failed, but you've tried it, you know what to do right and what not to do and what you want to improve for your next startup. And so that's incredible. You know, when Ignia got started, there was no one who had started a company before, right? There was sort of repeat founders was sort of unheard of entirely. The other aspect is that these founders are bringing now their best talent with them from other startups. You know, we've had some great successes, which you can call the Rappy Mafias or, you know, many different types of mafias that have come out of the region. The talent is just getting better and better. Right, right. Okay, so then a final question then for you, as you sort of look to the future and you look at Latin American fintech, what are you most excited about? 
there are so many aspects of fintech that are going to be entirely revolutionized, changed the way that the everyday consumer interacts. So what's most exciting about this future is that you see it's just taking out an enormous amount of friction in the lives of everyday Latin Americans. You know, our, our thesis at IGNIA has always been focused on serving the emerging middle class. And why is that the case? Is that because this is the segment of the population that receives the worst services for the highest prices. Mm-hmm. Right? So FinTech immediately addresses that and gives them much better services with much less friction and much better prices. So that's something that's very exciting to think about and and is what gets me thrilled to be doing this job every day, thinking about the future that we're building for Mexico and across Latin America is a better place to live and transact. Okay, well, that's uh, we'll have to leave it there, Christine. It is an exciting place. I, I love love going to visit and learning more about it and talking to people who are passionate about it as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Peter. You know, part of the reason I am so bullish myself about Latin America is because there are still so many people using cash, so many people not taking advantage of the technology and the more efficient ways to run a financial life. And so there is so much room for improvement. And even if, I mean, cash is probably not going to go away in this region anytime soon, but even if we just get a third of the population moving away from cash into more fintech products, it's going to have a massive impact on GDP. It's going to have a massive impact on jobs. And we're going to see some really big companies uh, get developed and make a real impact in the world. And I will continue to be excited. And obviously, we have a presence here with our Latin American event, but it is something that I think the more I learn about Latin America, the more excited I become for its future. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.